And so in addition to resources, leaders also need to be prepared to invest the time in, in the change. And, and what I mean by that is both their own time of thinking about and, and specifying and evangelizing for the change, but also they need to give the change enough time. <laughs> If you are not going to invest the right amount of time, if, if you're going to say to the organization, we need to do a strategic change and we expect it to be done in 18 months. I mean, it's an oxymoron and, and it sets the, the, the change up to fail. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to The Breakdown. I'm your host, Chris Clearfield. Let me know if you relate to this. Sometimes the toughest job for a leader isn't the substance of what they do, it's the context. It's not about having expertise in some particular domain. It's instead about leading their organization with grace and agility. And I'm gonna add curiosity too. Now, historically, organizational change has been one of the most difficult things a leader needs to do. And it's because it's a hard problem, but also because they don't often have the information or support they need to make change successful. And many leaders also try to lead organizational change without having a good mental model, a good understanding of what actually makes organizational change successful. So how can leaders make change successful? That's what I'm talking about today with my guest, Elsbeth Johnson. In the course of our conversation, Elsbeth and I discuss concrete steps that senior leaders can take to ensure that their efforts are successful. We also talk about the role of managers in carrying forward and implementing change and the way leaders can support those managers. Now, Elsbeth was the perfect conversational partner to discuss organizational change with. She's an MIT Sloan professor and the author of a book that came out last year called Step Up, Step Back, How to Really Deliver Strategic Change in Your Organization. The book is built off the research she did in her PhD thesis, and it's really fascinating stuff and also really practical. Elsbeth has worked in a bunch of different organizations uh, and as a change consultant for the last about 10 years. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Elsbeth. I hope you enjoy it and find it valuable. Let's get into it because you and I are both, I think, obsessed with change and we both yeah. think in <laughs> systems um, yes. and, and we both have system in the name of our company, which I feel like is saying something. Um, oh, I didn't realize that. What's the name of your company, Chris? Sys system logic. Um, oh, and yeah. Okay, cool. So Gosh, that's, I feel like, like we were separated at birth. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> but why don't you, why don't you start by introducing yourself um, and, and then we'll just, we'll get into it. We'll see where this takes us. Perfect. So um, I, I spent actually most of my career as um, both a, um, a banker, um, so a banker and a sell-side equity analyst, actually, um, and then got hired by one of the companies I had covered as an analyst to go and do a strategy role for them. So, so essentially for six, nearly seven years, I was head of customer and market strategy for Prudential's Asian business, and I also did business line development for them. Um, at that point in my career, I decided that 
um, having a full-time job was a little bit too much like hard work. And so I um, I went back to school. I did a PhD in organizational science and then became a professor at London Business School, where I was for five years. And, and then moved to MIT, which is a, a, the Sloan School at MIT, where I now teach. And I teach a couple of things there, including this, my particular change model on the school's leading change program. And I have to say, I absolutely love MIT. I love teaching there. It's a great school. Um, and so now, I mean, in addition to being um, uh, on the faculty at MIT, I'm a visiting fellow at the LSE. Um, I actually spend most of my time, however, with businesses and their leaders working on issues of strategy and leadership and change. Um, and that has afforded me some, um, some just fabulous work opportunities, um, working with amazing people who lead truly special companies. And of course, it's also a source of a lot of the stories and case studies that I, I talk about in the book, um, because very often the work that I'm doing with them is, as I say, how to implement a new strategy or to lead a strategic change. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. Um, why did you, so you you did your PhD thesis on change, right? I mean, the, your kind of yeah, work the, now. The, the, the book is essentially um, the the PhD repurposed. So the, the, the PhD exam research question was, um, was, well, I mean, as every PhD in the world has, has always done, it, it morphed from a slightly instrumental question around, you know, why do some change programs seem to work and others don't, to something a little bit more informed, which was, um, you know, the, the whole concept of, of this thing that I've termed meaningful autonomy, which is how do managers, so people two or three levels below the senior leadership team or the C-suite, how do they get set up so that they can make decisions about what to work on, what are the initiatives that need to get, get delivered in order to make the change successful. Because one of the things that I discovered in, in looking at and contrasting strategic change efforts that work versus those that don't, is that very often in those that work, one of the hallmarks of quote unquote the working is that an awful lot of the, the, the kind of detailed or micro level or tactical decisions about what should we work on so that we affect the change successfully? What should we be our priorities? What work streams do we need to get going on? An awful lot of those decisions were much more devolved than they were in the, in, in the, in the organizations where change didn't work. And, and when I say didn't work, what I really mean there is two things. Either it never really got successfully kick-started or it went very well for a period of time and then slipped back. So in other words, it never got sustained. In, in the companies where change was successful and sustained, it was very often because the, the decisions about and the work of the change was happening at three, four, five levels below the C-suite. And so almost as a byproduct of that initial research question, actually what the PhD increasingly focused on was what's the work that leaders are doing that sets their managers up 
to be the ones who are making these choices. And then as a result of that, in the particular context of strategic change, that seems to enable the change to not only happen, but also get sustained. Now, I suspect that there is a wider context for, for meaningful autonomy. And so, so totally. after the PhD was finished, I started while well, doing two things. First of all, taking that out on the road with my existing clients and talking about it. And, and, and although that doesn't change the research, is, I'm sure as you, you appreciate, it does very often improve the way in which you describe the research and the work that leaders need to get done. So my clients... Um, my clients are the source of a lot of the phrasing in the book, including the the, the source of its title, um, "Step Up, Step Back." That was that was actually uh, I came up with that title um, as a response to a leader who who said to me, "So let me just get this straight. You're telling me that I have to do tons of work at the start, and then I have to do much less." And I said, "Yes, essentially, you should think of it as you need to really step up and do more than you typically do in the early stages of change, and then you can and indeed ought to step back and do less than you typically do in its later stages." So, so, so that's the first thing that I was doing on the road was was kind of explaining this change, this new change approach. But I think the second thing I was doing was increasingly talking in slightly more general terms, in other words, not just in the context of strategic change, about what it takes for uh, leaders to be able to successfully delegate, to create capability to whom they can safely delegate, uh, but also to make it so that managers can respond to that with with. Um, you, you know, with with the with ability and 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 no fear, um, and so you know, there's there's a ton of conditions that leaders and, and work that leaders leaders need to do in order to make that happen. Right, and and I think there's a bunch. I mean, there's you know, that is such a rich answer. I mean, we could just take <laughs> like little bits of that and and talk yeah. about it for you know for hours. But <laughs> one of the things that that struck me, um, I mean, there were a bunch of things that struck me. Uh, both in that answer and and in your work, and I, I'm going to put it to you in my own words, but I'm wondering if this resonates with you. Um, one of the things that I have noticed is that uh, when organizations are struggling, it's often because leaders either kind of retain too much control of the work, which is one of the things you're talking about, and or they push the compromises too far down in into the system at too low a level. So yeah. if you I look at both of those things. Yeah, okay. So you know, just I, I like I think safety is a really easy way to think about this. And I'm talking about like actual like physical safety. And you look at this idea of the safety community has this idea of of kind of work is imagined, work is prescribed versus work is done. And and that is an instance where Leaders will tell people to do things in a certain way, but not resource them to do them in that way. And so you get compromises on the work, which are sort of, you know, known or not known, but but essentially you're you're pushing the kind of strategic compromise down too low from the perspective of yeah um, of a leader. So I think that's a, that's a great way to think of it, and. Uh, there is a really important distinction between the kind of work that can and indeed ought to get delegated yes. and the kind of work that absolutely cannot de get delegated. Um, in fact, it's a dereliction of leadership duty if it does get derelict, if, if it does get delegated. But actually, you know, Chris, the, the, 
what what I see happen much more with leaders is not that they're trying to delegate the strategic choices, but just actually they're just not they're not making clear strategic choices. And I think it's implicit. Else. Yeah, I think it's, it's an implicit. it's an it's an implicit yeah. delegation. I don't think yeah, they're it's saying implicit delegation because they're not right. doing the, that work themselves. That's right. And it's and it's uncomfortable work, right? Because that is always I oh, mean, yeah. like pushing back on on strategic compromise is it's an act of expressing voice and and you know your like it's hard to go to your boss and say hey you're asking me to do this but you're not actually resourcing me to do it and that that kind of um not phobia but that sort of um aversion cascades down and so you'll get this kind of more and it more it absolutely does and and one of the things that we notice in organizations that do use the step up step back approach to as i say you should think of it as being useful for not just a strategic change implementation but actually just any strategy execution is that that aversion doesn't exist um, because it doesn't need to exist um and so the way that i often talk about this is uh i talk about green zone work and blue zone work um which if you've read the book you'll you'll know what that means which is that that there are three green zone activities, essentially questions that leaders need to ask and then answer. And the answer is partly on them and it's partly co-created with the rest of the organization, of course. But but essentially the three green zone um, questions are, why are we doing this? What, what outcomes will we deliver and by when? And how do we need to behave with each other, with our clients? such that we are making more likely that those outcomes will get delivered. And then and, and, and leaders need to live in the green zone, articulate the answers to those green zone questions, and then go out and explain them and sell them and evangelize for them. And then the blue zone, which is the outer circle beyond those three green zone questions, is the activity zone. In other words, what work will we, will we do as an organization or a team? such that we make it more likely that those outcomes will get delivered. And that is not the primary work of leadership. That is the work of people who are lower down the organization than you, frankly, cheaper than you, which is the economic imperative, which is to delegate and make the best use of your assets. Um, to people who are closer to the customer, closer to the operations. and Closer to the work, to yeah. Closer to the work, correct. That's exactly it. Right. And I think there's it, I think it's interesting. So in in writing Meltdown, which is all about kind of looking at extreme cases of things and, and looking specifically at the role of of complexity, um, you know, one of the big sort of through lines, there's a chapter on it, but also it's just kind of a through line for, for everything is this idea that you need to have people that are closest to the work be making decisions about the work. And, and I think that you know, psychological safety is such a big part of that, right? So creating a space... Well, it's foundational, but it's not yes. enough. And I, I think you no, kind of agreed. alluded to a couple of the other things that are critical. And and again, I, I see this in, in my own research as well, which is on the foundation of psychological safety and assuming you've got the basic structural things like the people close to the work have the decision rights, they can actually, they have the power to actually do these things. They also need the resources, Otherwise, it's just a false ask that they also need the right amount of time. And so time is quite an important thing in my research around, you know, we're dealing with a strategic change. The nature of that is it's a long term business. 
Um, certainly the, the, the particular um, strategic change that I was investigating across four different business units took 42 months, so three and a half years to get delivered. That is not unusual. Um, and so in addition to resources, leaders also need to be prepared to invest the time in, in the change. And, and what I mean by that is both their own time of thinking about and, and specifying and evangelizing for the change, but also they need to give the change enough time. <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I, I think that it's an extraordinary world where I actually get paid to say to state the obvious to leaders. But, but actually, if you are not going to invest the right amount of time, if, if you're going to say to the organization, we need to do a strategic change and we expect it to be done in 18 months, I mean, it's an oxymoron. And, and it sets the, the, the change up to fail. And actually what we know is that what, what will typically happen as a result of that erroneous premise, which is strategic change can happen quickly, is that managers will perfectly rationally choose purely quick wins, essentially, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of cotta parlance, uh, and, and that's a perfectly rational reaction to being told you have to deliver ROI on your activity within a very short period of time. If, on the other hand, you're given the right amount of time, in other words, the typical three to five year time frame that any successful change just takes, I mean, it's the nature of the beast, then, of course, managers will respond by saying, yeah, you know what, we need to sort out the systems, we need to dedupe de the customer data, we need to invest in capability. And these things all have, they all take time, they all entail J-curves, uh, which will get worse before they get better. It is the nature of systemic change. And, and if you are not setting that up as a leader, and by the way, getting cover from your institutional investors um, for the time that and money that it, this will take, then then you will you will by definition be setting up the change to fail. Yes, so much of that resonates with me. And <laughs> uh, one of the things that I mean, there's two threads here, and I want to explore both of them. One is how do you support leaders in being stepping boldly into change while kind of holding like stepping boldly into change is really what I want to say. And, and, and what I mean is I think that there is a, it is hard for a leader to say, we are going to change this big thing. We're going to change it in we're, we want to move in this direction and we don't really know how to get there yet. Like, that I'm curious about just from a kind of human interpersonal level, how do you think about supporting them? Well, I think I would say two things. I think the first thing, the first problem that we're up against is actually a prior problem before we even come to how can leaders step boldly into the change that they've decided on, which is actually getting them to decide on change before they really, really, really have to change. That's the first problem. The vast majority of leaders, for very human reasons, wait until there is a burning platform. Um, and what that means is that it is by the time the platform's on fire, it is no longer possible to change slowly and in a relatively low risk um, boring way. Uh, and, and so by definition, you have reduced your degrees of freedom 
to change in an incremental way. And so you almost impose change that is faster and riskier and has to be more dramatic than it ever needed to be had you changed sooner. So, oh my goodness, your dog is adorable. He's my assistant so, producer. Sometimes he makes so that's, <laughs> that is the first thing I think that that for me, I'm always trying to push leaders to be to and, and, and sort of saying to them, look, what is going on outside the window that you really ought to be paying a bit more attention to, uh, either by way of opportunities that you're not making enough of or threats that you're not sufficiently aware of. And, and certainly dialing up an organization's capability to be good at looking out the window and, and working out trends. In other words, you know, kind of working out what's happening and, and maybe thinking about change long before the platform's on fire, really when there's only the smell of smoke in the air is, is I think the first, the, the prior question. Then once a leader has said, okay, well, there's something we need to change either in what the business does or how it does it, which is, you know, the kind of classic need for strategic change. It's a, it's a, it's a big ask. Then I think the question then is that the thing I asked them to be, and I don't use the word bold, but I do use the word clear. The thing I asked them to be clear about is what will the change deliver? Now that might be for, in an ideal world, it's for all three of these stakeholders. It's for, for shareholders. Right. In other words, it's something that you can measure at a PL level for customers, because frankly, they give you their revenue, they, they give you your revenue line. And and certainly for employees, because they are the people who, you know, deliver the value chain for you. So articulating outcomes is, I think, critically important. And actually, when I look at the, you know, the the the, the kind of prior both the risk the work on strategic change, but also the work on strategy and particularly around purpose. I mean, there's an awful lot from Simon Sinek and various other people about, you know, let's articulate purpose and why the organization exists. There's also a ton of stuff, of course, in, in the world of OB uh, around behaviors and culture. For me, the missing link very often that leaders aren't su sufficiently clear or prescriptive about is what will good look like? what will this change effort or this new strategy, what will it actually produce at a sufficiently kind of enterprise or P&L level such that everybody else in the organization can kind of look up at that North Star and go, oh, okay, so that's what we need to be doing. Okay, well, that helps me work out and translate what me, my team, my function needs to be doing in a way that will contribute towards that overall enterprise level deliverable. And so for me, that's that's the missing link. And back to your point about, you know, that this this is actually quite hard work. It's it's hard work because it 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 is asking leaders to put a very clear stake in the ground around choosing this particular outcome or these set of outcomes rather than another. And an awful lot of leaders, just as they like to, you know, um, push the, 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 the compromises down the organization, they very often like to, to hedge their bets on actually what outcome will I prefer over another. And so there's no hedging really allowed in this. In order to be sufficiently clear and prescriptive, you've got to make a choice. And that's and that's where for me that the idea of boldness comes in. You you yeah, you're, you're I, I bold, totally understand that. You're yeah. bold, but you hold it lightly. Because I, I think that, you know, one of the things I think 
a lot about is that a lot of these problems, you know, there's a kind of Taylorist view of the world where, where th- that I think is, is greatly outdated that, mm, I'd agree you know, that. is this idea that, um, the, the, the role of managers or the role the role of managers is to sort of tell others how the like figure out how their work is done and then and then tell others and that posits that there is a quote there is a kind of knowable how the work should be done right absolutely there is a best answer yeah there is a best answer right and and i think what's really interesting about thinking in terms of systems and thinking in terms of complexity is this idea that that there is not a knowable best answer there is only a sort of Next thing you can try and you can see what happens yeah. and you can see There's what that There's a series of hypotheses and, and the answers to those hypotheses will reveal themselves over time. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think I'd, I'd say two things around that. And, 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 I, and I, I like that distinction between the, com- the complex world and, and what, you know, Snowden and Boone have called the merely complicated, right? Right. Arguably, arguably Taylorism done done differently. This is not the 1920s, but done differently. Arguably Taylorism still has some place yes. in the merely complicated world. In other words, the world where you can analyze it because it's not a system. It's just a process or a value chain. Um, albeit that I would argue, and I, I'm sure you would too, which is, you know, the, 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 ta- the, the, a world where where managers or leaders tell other people how to do their job is got long gone. We 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 frankly, if if your if your job can be codified by your leader to that extent, it can be codified and given it to a robot. It can be automated, right? Completely, like, and that will happen. So so um so 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 that's the caveat on on even the the the, the continuing relevance of Taylorism, which is it's done differently. But I do think you know in a, in the in the merely complicated universe, you are definitely trying to have, you're trying to optimize, you're trying to have incremental improvement, um, process improvement, you know, marginal improvement and efficiency. The complex world is just completely different. And actually the way that a lot of businesses and indeed whole sectors get themselves into trouble is when they misunderstand the difference. They, they, they look at something uh, that is actually systemically a problem and, and complex. And they try to say, oh, it's not really complex. It's actually merely complicated. And therefore, it's capable of being analyzed in the way I normally analyze everything else. And that, of course, is exactly, I mean, arguably what caused the global financial or exacerbated the global financial crisis. It's it's what makes has made most of the disasters that we've ever studied in organizational science like Bhopal as, as problematic as they then became is because we we haven't seen the systemic issues in other words unintended consequences stuff that has yet to emerge long dated causal links all of the features of systems we haven't properly acknowledged them let alone understood them well and and i think that the only tweak i would kind of argue for in what you just said is i think that like the idea of pushing compromise down most of the time this is implicit most of the time leaders are not, are not setting out and saying, do I have a complicated or a complex system? I'd rather have a complicated one. I think they just, I mean, the thing that the idea I've been playing with, and, and it actually came out of a conversation uh, with Amy Edmondson on, on, on this podcast. But one of the ideas I've been playing with is just part of why it's so hard to be 
a manager who swims in the in the kind of system is because we spent most of our lives being taught about complicated things, you know, in Oh, completely. In, yeah. Our intuitive interaction with the world is linear, right? In yeah. in in most cases, school is like linear. It's like here's a here's a problem, come up with a known answer to it. And in fact, managers we often promote for kind of linear thinking and Absolutely. And, and results. Absolutely. And then yeah. at some point, and I'm interested in your perspective on where this shifts, because I mean, you've made this distinction between the C-suite and the level down and, and managers. And I think there is that shift from kind of senior manager to senior leader that requires a very fundamentally different approach. And, and I don't think most leaders get supported in that transition, either through content or or kind of increased psychological safety that says, look, we know you're going to make mistakes in this role. They have an expectation that they'll know the answer and that they'll be successful. How, yeah, does, that, how does that land? What do you think about that? Oh, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. In fact, I, I wrote something recently in, in, a, in the Journal of People and Strategy about exactly this, which is... Cool. I, I think we're up against a couple... I think leaders are up against a couple of things. I think, first of all, the skill sets that disproportionately get rewarded and, and therefore promoted in organizations are the skill sets of the MBA rather than the, the skill sets of the social scientist. Because essentially when we talk about skill sets here, right, if, if the skill set you need to, to, to thrive in the complicated world is that of analysis, then the skill set you need to really understand and, and try to work through the complex world is actually not an analytical skill set really at all, or at least not primarily, it's an exploratory skill set. It's the skill set of the ethnographer, of the, the person who can really discover and uncover and live in an alien world and try and work it out rather than, you know, do an NPV analysis of it, right? So so, so the, the first thing we're up against is very often these are not the skills that they not only started with, but have been subsequently rewarded for in their career. So we have essentially, a, a, well, they're not a self-selected sample, they're an organizationally selected sample, but we have an organ a sample at the top of an organization that has been rewarded for completely the opposite skill set. So that's so it's a skill set problem, I think, first of all. The second thing is, and I think you hinted at this in your question, Chris, is there's also a mindset problem or a, almost an ego problem, which is I I'm I'm not I do not want to admit that I don't know. Right. And so so it, by definition, I can't I can't know the answer to a systemic question. So I'm going to try extremely hard to make it a non-systemic question, in other words, a merely complicated thing, because I can work that out. It's analyzable. And, and, I think and, one of the and things knowing that really... you've been, re I'm, I'm talking over you, but you've been rewarding, you've been rewarded for knowing your whole career. That's the whole Correct. reason you got to that leadership That's, position. Yes. And, 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 and therefore, I think it, in, in psycho psychological terms, this becomes an identity issue yes. as much as a skill set issue, which is... I am, I am a knower. I am an expert. And so if I'm suddenly in a world which is not knowable, where expertise is not only unhelpful, but potentially dangerous because it's premature, then actually I, I will do quite a lot to reframe the, the problem as something else that I'm, I'm much more, in terms of my identity and skill set, much more able to do. Um, and I think the only thing I would add to that is, um, as you know, I teach at MIT, and it, it's a it's a daily privilege to teach with some extremely, or to sit in class with some people who are just world standard, in fact, Nobel winners. The people I experience 
who are most comfortable saying things like, well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. Or, gosh, I hadn't, I don't actually know the answer to that, are the most intellectually gifted. Yes, yes. The people who have most trouble saying, I don't know the answer to that, I'm afraid, or I hadn't thought about that before, let me think about that, are actually not the most gifted thinkers that I ever come across. And so I sometimes almost describe this as leaders with high capability and low ego. And when I say high capability, what I mean is really, really high capability, um, both as leaders and intellectually. And, and I'm privileged to not only see some of those people, you know, teach at MIT, but actually some of my clients are exactly in that category. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, I mean, I'm happy to name a couple of them, but Simon Seegers, who's the CEO of Arm, I think is one of the most uh, high capability, low ego leaders I see. Simon what he doesn't know about his company and his sector, it, it, I mean, could be written on a postage stamp. And yet he is always saying, tell me what I don't know. He's always seeking out an alternative bit of data or a different view or a challenging view. And I don't think it's accidental that he, as a result, has led, um, you know, a, a, an extraordinary company full of other incredibly clever and relatively low ego leaders um and so for me those are the kind of leadership and it's a it's a total package right it's skill sets mindset it's personality and ego that, for me those are the leaders that we need yes at times when complexity is at its highest yes i yes yes a thousand times <laughs> yes um and, and I, I, I want to share a story that um, Charles Perrault, who who we built a significant amount of meltdown around his kind of idea of complexity and tight coupling. Uh, my co-author Andras and I went and interviewed him in on like a, an August day in New Haven as we were just getting started writing the book. And, you know, when we started out, we we sent him an email and and connected with him and and so he knew we were coming but he really couldn't figure us out you know Andras was a professor at, at the University of Toronto at the time but he was he was kind of a new professor there and and he didn't really know what I was and I still don't really know what I was so he's, he's forgiven for that but we showed up and had lunch with him at um at a restaurant and he sort of figured out that we actually we're ready to engage with him. You know, we had read his papers, like we had, we, right. we were the, and knew so enough. we knew enough. Yeah. And, but, but to your point, you know, one of the things that, um, Perot, I think got held up on a little bit or his work got held up on was this idea of the normal accident and the idea that the normal accident is an inevitable outcome of the system. And, and lots of people would have questions about like, well, was this accident really inevitable? And was this accident really inevitable? And, you know, to your point about humility and, and kind of consideration, I mean, here he was, I think he was 93 years old when we interviewed him. Um, and, and I mean, just still incredibly sharp. Um, and, we sort of played with that idea with him. And one of the things that, that, you know, came up that, that I thought was really interesting was you, you look at three mile Island, which is of course the kind of centerpiece of, of, of what he studies as a normal accident. And, you know, his argument is that it's, it's kind of, you can draw a boundary around that system and, and that system is a normal accident. But one of the things we talked about was, you know, part of why that plant was even online is because, there were huge tax incentives that meant that they had to be operational by right. December thirty first. System, 
the year before it. Yeah, there's a wider system. And just, I mean, you know, here we were two, you know, kind of two fresh faced, you know, kids kind of coming into his house and, and putting this idea to him. And he was just so curious and humble and really like just interested in it. And, and that was a moment where, you know, how sometimes it's just like, what somebody models is just has a just a lasting impact and that was a moment where it was just like oh wow this is all about the spirit of inquiry it's not about being right it's just about being being curious and engaging exactly. so it's, exactly it's and, cool and, and i do think experience. the linkage you the linkage you make there between curiosity and humility is really important and not not actually always made enough i hear a lot of people um, evangelize for the importance of curiosity and i don't disagree with that i just don't think on its own it's ever enough which is it's perfectly possible for me to be intellectually curious and also intellectually arrogant at the same time. And if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be intellectually arrogant, then my curiosity is completely wasted because essentially I'll, all I'll, it, first of all, I'll limit what I'm curious about, but also the lens with which I will approach uh, or apply my curiosity is uh, tell me, tell me that I'm right tell me the ways in which I'm right, as opposed to tell me the ways in which I'm wrong. Um, now, I, I mean, I'm sure curiosity scholars would, would argue with us and say, well, sure, but that's not real curiosity. The, the problem I think is that when I see leaders model what they think is curiosity, um, even if they've acquired some curiosity skills, and, and you know, frankly, there are, there are books to read about that and, and, and specific skills and questions you can ask, if you're not asking those questions, what David Rock calls thinking questions, in the spirit of teach me something I don't know, tell me something I didn't know before, tell me tell me the ways in which I'm wrong. If you're not modeling it with the right attitude or, or frame, then it's almost doing more harm than good, I think, because other people, particularly if you're a leader, will see, oh, that, that counts as curiosity, whereas actually it doesn't because it's right. negated right. by the motivation. Yeah, one of my clients used the term objective curiosity to to describe this, and <laughs> that's interesting. And I, yeah, I liked it. And there, were, it was a group of of engineers that I was working with, really working to change a big system that they were embedded in. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, this just kind of through a series of workshops that that we were doing around this idea of solving impossible problems, which I think is a really like an interesting way to frame this. And, you know, we talked about, so, so like many kind of groups that are responsible for change, they had gone away and spent lots of time digging into the data, looking at the issue. And when they were going back to the teams in the field who were actually doing the work, they were getting a lot of resistance. And what we worked with, what, what I worked with with them as a leadership team was this idea of, you know, you've got one view of the problem, but the people on the ground who you respect and you once were, they're going to have a different view of the problem. So get get genuinely curious about what their view of the problem is, because it might help you see your data in a different way. Completely. Um, don't be like, you don't have to be a wallflower. You're not just there for them to share their opinions. But that that sounded dismissive. What I really mean is like, you're allowed to have a point of view. I'm not saying don't oh, yeah. have a point of view, but but it's not the only point of view. It's not the only point of view, and and you can present your point of view, but hold it very lightly. Present your point of view and see how they push back against it, because that will refine it. 
Yeah. And I, and I think just on that, I mean, um, what I'm always encouraging uh, clients to do is have clear opinions loosely held. Yes. Whereas actually most of the time it's completely the opposite. It's relatively unclear opinions. Tightly held, yeah. Really strongly held, right? Which is doing nobody any favors. Um, and I think the other thing that that um, you know that that springs to mind in, in your example of the of the, the the well, I suppose two things that spring to mind when you talk about your example of the the resistance on the ground is I always encourage people to think of when, when they get resistance. I mean, it, it could be resistance. It could be I think your idea is rubbish, and I and I'm not going to do it. Okay, it could be. But there's actually a whole host of other things it could be. And for me, the first cab off the rank for leaders when they see resistance, the first conclusion that they should they should come to about themselves, actually, is that this is not actually resistance. It's actually just feedback. It's feedback on how they as a leader have currently have set up the current system. Right. To do the new ask. In other words, when people are resistant to change, it's it's usually because they look at the change that you're asking for and they go well I haven't got the resources to do that and and it, it's a way too ambitious in the time frame and by the way I've got too much else on and I've got no slack or bandwidth to process this so it's usually feedback um, that actually as a leader you kind of need to to take on board I think the second thing that always comes up for me at least in my mind um, in a conversation about how differently people see situations or indeed interpret data is of course the ladder of inference yes. um, and, the, and the need to walk yourself and the other person in the conversation down, down. your respective ladders. Um, and, and that is a tool that, uh, I mean, honestly, Chris, if, if I could, you know, if there was a magic wand I could wave where every leader knew what it was and was skilled at doing it in in conversations i think that would get us out of a lot of sticky moments in organizations particularly dangerous ones around safety or um or or, or just really bad risky decisions because very often and again it's back to your point about the stuff that remains implicit in decision making you know one of the things that the ladder is always trying is designed to do is to make explicit the data you've looked at the the interpretation you've come to and therefore the conclusion on which you've landed as opposed to just simply having those things implicit and unarticulated so yeah I mean for me it all comes back to that I mean again not, not that everything in the world is it can be solved by a systemic approach but but that you know obviously the ladder is in many ways a systems tool um and i do think it is incredibly incredibly useful and, and i i think i agree not everything can be solved with the systems approach in fact in in some cases it's the wrong approach to take but there are things well, that well it's wrong in the sense that it's solved. unnecessary it's unnecessary uh, right yeah it, i mean i i don't i don't think you'd ever you might miss a trick because you'd you'd be slower to market. You you would be you, it would your proposition would be more expensive because you've you've gone through a, a more convoluted process of thinking and analysis than you needed to do, and testing when actually you didn't need to test. You just needed to do it. But but uh, but but yes, I, I I think other than the, the other than the purely complicated, I, I think um, I, I think that that's. Yeah, it, it's it's not it, it's just unnecessary rather than unhelpful. Yeah, well, 
like I guess I guess what I'm thinking is, is there an example I can think of where a systems approach would actually be dangerous or purely unnecessary? I'm not sure that I can Driving. think of one where I mean only in the in the sense that you get to be, you know, you get the capabilities to be good at something. I mean, there are things where people can develop expertise, right? Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Uh, but I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to think through is if if there was so so again in, to use the Snowden and Boone model, you know, if uh, even even more kind of basic than just complicated is is simple, where where frankly you've got a stunning operating procedure, you just do it, you press F9, it works fine, right? Now, arguably, as even if you took a systemic approach to that, it wouldn't be dangerous. It would just be utterly unnecessary and slow and inefficient and costly. Well, you know, here, here, here is something I've been playing with that I'll, I'll, I'll put to you, and I'm curious, and it, it doesn't exactly map onto our conversation, but, but I think it's a, it's a different way of kind of getting at the same thing, which is just this idea that there are modes of being that are more or less adaptive in, in more, in different environments. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is, is aviation safety in, in particular, because it's a nice way to study kind of you know, extreme values. When there's an accident, we invest a lot in understanding what happened. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so when you, when you look at the evolution of aviation safety, you know, in the 1970s, you had a, a series of accidents where they were basically caused by uh, a crew that wasn't working well together or an overbearing captain um, and or an overbearing captain. And, and what happened as a result of that was the industry really um equalize the flight deck so you, you the, the captain is still the pilot in command but you now have a pilot monitoring and a pilot non-flying you have this this whole school of of training called crew resource management which is all about how do you communicate in a structured way with each other it is a very this is really interesting i i wasn't aware of this although it it mirrors very similar it's very similar to the um to the research in how to make um, surgeons uh, in theater yes. safer. Yes, it, it's, it's and, and in fact, anesthesiology really looked at aviation and picked up a lot of these cues to, to okay. kind of bring it over. So and now, I mean- The linkage is clear, yeah. Yeah, the, it, and it, it really it really is a, a, a linkage. And in fact, I, I um, uh, know a guy and have done, done a couple of, interesting things with him who is uh he's formerly at the national transportation safety board so the the u.s accident investigator um and but then he also did a kind of extern you know a sort of uh what, what do you call it um a secondment to um a medical safety uh organization oh, wow. for a number okay. of years so it's it, it is a very explicit link um yeah but yes you've got this crew resource management thing which which is the kind of modern way of thinking about you know high reliability kind of team driven critical tasks and how to do that. Now, what's interesting is <clears throat> something happens in aviation when there's a crisis. So, when there's a crisis, you revert the 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 captain will take back over. They will revert back into the kind of command and control stance. It's still very structured, but it's, you know, if you think about the 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 miracle on the Hudson, the you know the 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 Chesley B. Sully Sullenberger the third flight. The, the when the when the when the geese hit when the geese are cooked, the the first thing he does is say my airplane, 
which takes yeah. control back from from the um, from Skiles, the first officer. So I'm just playing with that as an analogy because what I would say is in that crisis situation, you do want it would be not just inappropriate, but but maladaptive and detrimental to have the kind of the sort of like human systems view that that crew resource management g gets you. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's I, I think that is true. And actually, interestingly enough, to, to go back to the Snowden and Boone typology, um, that, that, you know, that's what they would call chaos, which is, uh, you know, and, and their prescription there is is the is just act, just do something because that you will get better data. And and the person who should be doing the acting is the person with most essentially experience and judgment um, because th their their decisions about what to do will be on the whole better than than you know a, a democratic a more democratic view of of the way forward so that makes sense but i think i think for me the reason that the the biggest single thing that is um that we know about a crisis right it's almost part of its definition is that it's short-lived yes and so there it, it's kind of okay for the leader to become this you know quasi dictator who just who just basically makes decisions doesn't seek a ton of input and it's kind of on you know it's it's the sully show for the for the duration of the crisis because that is not going to be that's not going to become a, a a kind of new way of working because it just doesn't last long enough right for me the interesting thing is what happens to leaders post crisis and actually um, when I look at why uh, quite a lot of my um, of, of the leaders whom I advise, they they after the initial kind of, oh, my God, it's a brand new zoonotic disease and it's created a global pandemic. Is my business going to survive this for, for two or three months of that? They've actually had quite well, it hasn't been an unenjoyable time for a lot of the leaders whom I advise. And I find that interesting. I think in large part, it's because they felt that and indeed they have had license to be to take faster decisions with a bit less input in a, in a much less democratic way. And in fact, one of the things that um, and, and this uh, this was something that my colleague, my MIT colleague and I, um, Fiona Murray and I wrote about in SMR um, in the winter issue this year is just what is it about? what has it been about COVID that, that that actually leaders could almost try and replicate in a non-crisis environment because some things have worked very well for leaders in, in the in a crisis environment. One of the things that I think they need leaders need to be very careful about is almost interpreting normal life as a crisis environment of of of, of their own making because it gives them legitimacy to behave in this slightly more um lone wolf um you know i'm scully on the hudson sort of way because again i think now a, a lot of in my view the very best leaders you know don't have a default setting which is i'm a lone wolf and i want to make all my own decisions with with no no input as i say i think high capability low ego leaders um don't want to lead that like that they, they are looking for a return to normal but i do i am currently cautioning some leaders to beware that the crisis 
by definition doesn't last forever. And therefore, by definition, this is not the way to lead in normal times, or at least it, it ought not to be. Well, and there and there's an element in what you're saying that I think is really interesting because I think, um, and this probably goes up to the this is a step up and step back is the temporal dimension of this, but but I think there's also kind of a spatial dimension of this, which is, um, I think that leaders, I've often observed, and I've never quite put it in these terms, so I'll say it and we'll see how it pops out, <laughs> that that leaders kind of. Um, they are not explicit enough about the level of engagement that they are looking for from yeah. from their teams. And and yeah, what I mean by that is they don't they don't contract. Right. Yes. There are some problems where actually the leader should just make a decision. There are some problems where they should seek input and then make a decision. There are some problems where they should share their thinking and make a decision. And and I think the challenge is, is that those often all get collapsed to the same format, to the same um meeting and to yeah to the same like there's there's not enough differentiation is i guess the way that that i would put it, it sounds totally like it sounds like that, that lands with you yeah i totally agree with that i mean I, I do quite a lot of work with senior teams particularly around senior team dynamics and one of the things i mean we we have a word for this for the thing that you're talking about which is process conflict um, process conflict arises when people are not sufficiently clear or agreed about the way in which decisions will get made. In other words, how much consultation will there be? Who will will we vote? You know, who will make the decision? Um, and very often, the reason that process conflict uh, exists, and and this is including at within senior teams themselves is not actually because people disagree about it. It's just they've never had the conversation. Right. And so so just one of the very first things, I, you know, I typically do, assuming we've got the right people on, on the team itself. Um, so if the composition of the team works, one of the very first things we need to do in order to make the dynamics of the team work is just to agree how things will get done, how decisions will get made. And very often that's the very first time that that team will have had that conversation. And I always find that very interesting. So I think the point you're making, I mean, I would completely agree with it, but ironically, I actually think there's quite an easy fix to it. It's just that the team needs to have the conversation. And invariably, it's only when they have a stranger in the room like me and they're, they're paying me to turn up that they, they feel forced to do that rather than just get on with talking about all the things that they think are material for the firm. Yes, I would say I would just shape a little bit it's a simple fix, but it's not easy. It's oh, I agree. No, no, no. And that's that's why we get. That's why you and I get paid the big bucks, right? <laughs> because, right. Because the the art um, and and skill to push and cajole and encourage and clarify um, and coach them to uh, to to get that clarity and and to actually have that conversation. It, it is not easy. I I completely agree with that. Right. Yeah. Well, so we're we're just I'm just aware of the time and I I would like to ask you one more question and then just give you a chance to sort of tell people how they can find out more about you. Um Great. My last question is is kind of a little bit of a shift from the content to the context, which is um how what do you do to to put yourself out there to develop your business to um like how do leaders find you to work with you? Um, that, that kind of question, like the question kind of that's, that's about your business rather than in your business. 
Sure. Well, I'm probably going to have a really lame answer to this, Chris, because actually until about a year ago, I didn't even have a website. So I had been um, a, a, an advisor, a consultant um, and an educator for about 10 years by this stage. And, and literally all of my clients were word of mouth referrals. Also, people who I don't think I've ever lost a client. And so they, you, you know, they if if they um, if they were going to another firm, they would take me with them. So. Um, a year ago when the book came out, I thought, um, actually, oh, maybe this is the year I need to get my act together and have a website. So System Shift now has a website, www.systemshift.com. And that is is the kind of first portal of, of that explains what we do. Um, otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't use Twitter a huge amount. I essentially use it as a news feed. I think I have about three followers, um, but I'm a lot more uh, a lot more um, engaged with LinkedIn. But um, but in terms of um, in in terms of marketing, we we, we do very little, um, and that's largely because um, when we have a client, we very often so the three bits of or, or, or kind of practices that we have are a senior teams practice, which works on the composition and structure and dynamics of senior teams to make them a little bit less dysfunctional, a strategy practice to help clarify and articulate the strategy of a business and then an organizational effectiveness practice that is essentially saying okay well we've got the strategy now do we have both the capability and also the culture that's going to enable us to deliver on the strategy that we've promised the market or our investors and very often the vehicle for closing either the capability gap or the culture gap are executive development programs, leadership development programs that we design and deliver for clients. So, so very often we'll have clients in in at least kind of two of those buckets. Um, and so it's a you, you know a lot of our clients have been clients for a while, and and so um, so it, we're not doing. I, I would say we're not really doing active business development other than me returning emails from from people who are inquiring from about the website or about me. So, that's fabulous. so I say that sounds a little bit lame, but, but it, it's, it's, it's working reasonably well. <laughs> no, it sounds ideal. I mean, it sounds, it's great. <laughs> well, Elspeth, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really oh, interesting. It was a pleasure. It was really interesting. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well. So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. 
Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.